This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, I am Vulture Senior Editor Jesse David Fox, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. Each episode, a comedian comes on to play and talk about one of their jokes. This week's guest is Amanda Seals, who you can see this summer live on her Smart, Funny, and Black tour. And she picked her joke about catcalling from her recent HBO special, I Be Knowin'. Of the things she be knowin' is herself. I say that because, compared to most guests on the podcast, Amanda has relatively less stand-up experience. By the time she filmed her special, she had only been doing stand-up for about five years or so. That said, you wouldn't be able to tell that from the confidence Seals displays on stage and in her writing. Amanda likes to say she's not for everyone. Now, she writes with intention and purpose. This is because of Amanda's many varied successes in poetry, hosting, acting, and music before she ever tried stand-up. Amanda spent the early part of her career refining exactly who she was as an artist. Just took finding stand-up until she had an art form where she could properly express exactly who that was. So, here is Amanda Seals. We're dealing with real things. Women are still dealing with catcalling. Why? Has it ever been proven effective? No. I was on a show on CNN where I had to discuss catcalling with the whitest white man of whitery. You know, like the kind of white man that wears two polos at the same damn time. One, uh, two. So... He comes on the screen and he's like, ah, 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 ah. I think we can all agree. Okay. <laughs> the minute I hear a straight white man say, I think we can all agree, I know we do not agree. So this man is on TV and he has the caucasity. to say, eh, I think we can all agree that all women love getting compliments from men in the street. Whom? When I hear such foolery, it makes me first just go to the root. And I say, okay, this is somebody who doesn't know what a compliment is. And you know, black women... <laughs> we are the masters at compliments. We, we have taken compliments down to a precise science of conciseness, where we don't even say a full sentence. We just say at you what we're looking at on you. <laughs> okay, polka dots. <laughs> when it's that easy, you gotta hand them out all the time. Cause you gotta remember, it doesn't diminish you any to big another sister up. <laughs> Compliments. How could he not know? For clarification, if I'm in Brooklyn at midnight and a Jamaican man 
of Ears from the Shadows. Sweetness. You look like a vanilla ice cream. Me want lick you. That's not a compliment. That's a threat. If I'm in Harlem and some brothers pause their dice game, it's the polite thing to do. And they like, yo, shorty rocking rough and stuff with one afro puff and the jacket and the pants with the da 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 on it. I see you, ma. What's really good? Yeah, it's not a compliment. It's an observation. Then they want you to smile. Why you mad? Let me see them pearly whites. Yo, why you ain't smiling, ma? You know why I'm not smiling? Because I just spent the last 20 minutes in a public bathroom fashioning a makeshift maxi pad out of a long-ass CVS receipt. Just so I don't gotta walk around here looking like a dire wolf bit me in the pussy. You still trying to holler, nigga? What's up? We are here with the comedian behind the joke you just heard, Amanda Seals. Thank you so much. Hi. I wanted to back up a little bit to provide someone who doesn't know your whole story some context that I think uh, will shine a light on your unique perspective on stand-up. Because you started uh, in October 2013 in your early 30s, which I mentioned just because that is not usually when people start doing right. stand-up. And... I first became aware of you uh, when you were in college. You did Deaf Poetry Jam. I was yeah. in high school. I was I was like, oh, wait, that was the same person who did that. And I remember that. Really? Yeah. I was like, and I, re- I rewatched it preparing for this interview. And I was like, I think I try to write a poem not using that your thing, but like in that rhythm. Nice. Nice. <laughs> um, so if you can do the sort of greatest hits version between 2002 when you're in Deaf Poetry Jam and then 2013. 2013 when you're a stand-up comedian just to give a sense of sort of all the things that sort of get into the perspective that got into the joke um 2002 i was at suny purchase then i went to graduate school for african-american studies at columbia from 03 to 05 during that time i became a vj on mtv then i was also doing radio at sirius satellite radio then i transitioned into becoming a recording artist so i was doing 
rapping and singing and putting out projects. And I was always involved in like different little TV spaces. Like mm-hmm. I was doing Best Week Ever on VH1 and like Countdown stuff and doing random little hosting jobs. And then uh, I was under the name Amanda Diva at that time. And then in 2011, I switched my name back to Amanda Seals. And I was I was doing a web series at AOL called Black Voice on AOL Black Voices called The Spark. And the reason why that's seminal for me is because doing that got me back into like considering my voice as Mm. a like personality beyond just um, as a music artist. And I was doing characters. I started doing characters and just developing my comedic voice in another way again because I had done a web series before, but I just like. It was it was before it made sense to do web series, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was like this is just for you. Yeah, and then I just realized, you know, between 2011 and 2013, that I was broke and that I wasn't going to do reality TV and I wasn't going to like just all of a sudden become some big music artist. And I left the music behind and I started doing one woman shows and I did a show called Death of the Diva about how like reality TV had affected women's presence in the mediascape. And then I did a second show called Mo Better Woo, where I took Wu-Tang records and turned them into jazz. I actually just performed that at Kennedy Center this weekend. And then I had a moment go viral on CNN where this... this white guy and I were asked to speak about catcalling after this video had gone viral of a woman walking through New York being catcalled. And my responses to him were, I guess, just so raw and like just unabashedly shocked at his ignorance that it ended up really exploding. And that became the impetus for me to start doing another one-woman show, which became a lecture called Side Eye Seminar which is identifying and defying everyday forms of sexism. And from doing those lectures, I was able to get up enough money to be able to move to LA. I moved to LA and then shortly thereafter, I got on Insecure, which is on HBO. And I transformed this show that I was doing called Smart, Funny and Black in New York. I transformed it into a different format and it's now become a touring like theatrical comedy live music game show extravaganza (laughs) and uh, we will be on tour in July of this year for the You Know the Vibonics 101 tour it's our second nationwide tour you can get tickets at smartfunnyandblack.com and I just hosted uh, Bring the Funny on NBC which is going to premiere July 9th bullet points great I think you nailed it so you you posted the first clip of when you perform stand-up on the Smart, Funny, and Black YouTube channel. And I and I would not suggest that to most comedians starting out, but yours, I truly, I'm not saying this to flatter you, I watch a lot of comedians who are starting out. Yours is like this, you would never guess that was your first time. Really? Doing well, it's just sort of your, I mean, it's because you're so comfortable on stage, I think is the biggest part. That and you knew kind of what you wanted to talk about. So here's the, here's <sighs> the truth. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I actually was on my way downtown and then I had to take the L to Williamsburg where the show was. And when I transferred to the L, someone had jumped on the tracks. And so there was no well trains. So I was standing outside really pondering, like, is this a sign that I should not be yeah. doing this? Like, is this obstacle created to deter me from my, what I, my perceived path? And then um, this very HBO girls, white girl was like, are you going to Williamsburg? And I was like, I mean, that was the plan. She's like, do you want to share a fucking cab? And I was like, I mean, I'm going to do this just for the jokes. Yeah, yeah. So we shared this cab. And in the cab, and it actually is in October. I realized it was November 6th was my first show. Yeah. But Halloween had just passed. 
And so we were in this cab and somehow or another, like Halloween, you know, Halloween came up because it just passed. But we were talking about like blackface and she had never heard of blackface. She's never heard of the concept? She's never heard of the concept of blackface. She could figure out probably what it was. No, I had to break (laughs) it down. And so I was explaining to her because that was a year when people are doing a lot of like Trayvon Martin costumes and just being really just like explicitly racist and egregious with these Mm -hmm. Halloween costumes. And she was like, my God, this is ridiculous. Like she was appalled, rightfully so, and thankfully so, because we were in a small space. But after I got to the show, I realized that like the whole plan I had had to go out the window mm-hmm. because I just had this like very funny experience. Literally, this girl is who Lena Dunham wrote girls about. <laughs> I, and it was so I never come to Williamsburg. So it was like, okay, where are you at, Ashton? Diversity in the room, but uh, so happy belated Halloween, right? White folks got some slinging to do. What in the don't we have a black president with down this Halloween? Uh, Which has ended up becoming like a framework for how I write jokes and how I create jokes. And I really write on stage and I really write directly from experience. When you say write on stage, you know, every comedian says that and then means slightly different things. Okay. Are you going up completely with nothing? Do you have sort of bullet points of things you want to hit? Do you then record it? Like, you sort of, what is the sort of process? Ba- yeah, basic of what you mean when you say you write on stage. So, doing this special, doing the I Be Knowing special was my first real like process of gaining a process, yeah. right? Because I think for a lot of us, the goal is to write towards the next special. So, up until I was doing the special, I was just like doing jokes. And I mean, I would develop them on stage. Like I don't write, I don't sit down with a pen. So I don't necessarily have bullet points in terms of like points in the joke as much as I have points, like bullet points of like bits that I'm going to do. But to expand upon that, like once I knew I was doing the special, I started getting clearer about like, okay, I need to stick to this being this way every time. And like, there were certain jokes that had like endings that I didn't think were mis- maybe necessarily as like provocative or as mm-hmm. as uh, poignant as I wanted them to be. So I just started being more conscious about like seeking that out versus like letting it land, yeah. whatever. And that was when, and it wasn't until I did the special that I actually like sat down and like wrote out like certain jokes that I knew I wanted to find a new ending to. And then that process worked. Now, Writing a joke while I'm deliver de- developing the joke yeah. will kill it every time. Yeah, yeah. I am terrible at writing jokes. <laughs> like when I put a pen to paper, it's immediately not going to be funny. For some reason, I have to come up with it on stage. I have to come up with it like Jay Z. Yeah. Like it's supposed to be like that off the top of my head. I mean, there's just no other way. I also learned doing the special that I am not a surgical comic, and so I was really like trying to like force myself into okay, you're going to like perfect every word. It's going to be every very very precise. You're going to Seinfeld this. Yeah. And Stan Lathan, who directed my special, was like. Nah. He's like, it's just, just not, not you. you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was like, it's just not you. Like, feel free to, like, let it breathe, spread it out. You know how to think with edits in mind, and um, we'll figure it out. It's interesting, the idea that you think with edits in mind. When when you describe all the things you do and sort of how you're sort of prepared to do this without having done it, I, I always imagine uh, Captain Planet in so much as that he is the c- combination of five different yes. things. Um, I'm to, the avatar. Yeah, so to extend this metaphor, can you think of this sort of specific when you're like, oh, the poetry part and the music part and the hosting, how that all, like, how did each facet combine to make you sort of already have tools that stand-ups develop while they also are developing other tools, if that makes sense? Sure. 
So there's DJ. <laughs> and so being a DJ, I can read a crowd. Yeah. So I can feel a crowd, I can feel their energy, and I know how to use like my empathic skills on stage or like on a platform to be able to know where to take them and where they don't want to go or where they don't like. And I think that was an essential like element to my being a successful stand-up quickly was because I could feel like, oh, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Or crowd work. Like I can do crowd work right quick away. because I can feel like where we need to go. Then I would say poetry. Uh, and I would say the poetry because comedy is rhythm. Yeah. You know, and so, and and I'll, I'll get to music, but poetry specifically because when you're doing spoken word, you're creating your own rhythm. Whereas like when you're rapping, you are locked into a rhythm that's already created for you. So there's a different type of control that you have to have when you're doing spoken word in terms of determining like how your cadence is going to switch and how you're going to flip things to keep people still interested and when you're doing stand-up it's the same thing those dynamics of like how that rhythm is going and how that how long you want to keep that pause and all that stuff is best when it's organic and I think because I had done poetry I had an innate sensibility with that that I didn't have to spend a lot of time developing then there's music (laughs) and so just being able to sing has been like kind of this little added tool that I have in my back pocket that can just kind of help enhance jokes and yeah. just bring another level of comedy to what I'm doing. And also just, again, with like being an MC, you know, when you're rapping, you think lyrically about things like you even even outside of poetry I feel like as an MC you have to think a little bit more wittily about how you're going to lay things down and you have more like limitations and I would say that when I'm doing stand-up I've been able to sign kind of like get jokes that have like a lyricism feeling to them because now I have people that like quote my jokes as lyrics which is like odd but also like very satisfying if I'm being honest and then there's the wild card, which is theater. I do a lot of storytelling. So being able to act out things and being able to play like the actual characters that I'm talking about, I think is a very unique element to my stand-up. And it kind of gives a broader, another broader, sorry, a clearer picture to my audience. And they just are able to like be in the moment with me when I'm talking about the plane and the white woman and Tyrone. And like they can just be there, you know? And it always better for them to be there than you trying to convince them of it and then I would say the last two which are like the wild cards are gymnastics because I'm really in my body and I think that there's a physicality specifically to black comedy like traditional black comedy that um, can sometimes people feel like gets lost when you have more of an intellectual side to your comedy and I felt like I had become this very intellectual comic, but then once I got more in my body and like using my physicality and just being fearless with that and my limberness, et cetera, like it just elevated every joke to another level. And then lastly, education. Because I'm speaking about things from a different point of view because I've studied them from a different point of view. It's not just experiential. There's a certain anthropological level there. There's a certain level of academic and research there, academia and research there that kind of just gives a whole other layer to what I'm talking about. And I think uh, on top of that, I just have an extensive vocabulary that has ended up becoming this other uh, notation to my comedy that people make note, that people like call out. Like I'll say certain words and like it's 
oh, only Amanda would say deleterious, like in a joke, <laughs> you know, because I think there's a fear that people aren't going to understand. So like, I don't want to, you know, some people may not want to use like this multi-syllabic word or whatever, but I'm like, look it up. So catcalling and the, the joke thereof, um, before sort of we even talk about writing this, I would love to get a sense of sort of your personal experience that sort of all the world of it that went into before you actually wrote the joke. I, I mean, I came to school at SUNY Purchase, but then I came to Harlem to go to Columbia and I lived in Sugar Hill. And I mean, just on a regular basis, you're just being catcalled in various ways. Sometimes it's even physical, you know? Yeah. And so it just always felt invasive and it always felt scary a little not always scary but sometimes it felt scary and sometimes you just have scenarios where you're just in shock of like why would anyone interact with a woman or anybody in this way and so a lot of the stuff that ends up in my stand-up does so because of me trying to figure out the paradox of why the hell it is what it is and then trying to create just a semblance of laughing to keep from crying <laughs> to get to the bottom of it, but also just a sense of relatability to those who I know have experienced the same thing. Had you created anything that involved that subject matter before before your stand-up? Like, was, were there any songs or poems where you talked about it? After I did that CNN appearance, and then I did the the lecture um, side-eye seminar, I mean, I talk about everyday forms of sexism, like, and so catcalling is one of those, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, aside from stuff, the the more, like, seemingly benign but very present, like, oh, you're good at that for a girl. Yeah. Or, you know, um, just the idea that, like, you have to, that there's some sort of version of what it is to be ladylike. Like, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> so, like, Catcalling fell into that, and so I was speaking about that and rape culture and just the the more overt examples that we see. But catcalling was there; it's yeah. always there. Yeah, because it really is always there. Like you're literally always like, "God, <laughs> I'm just trying to walk here." It's like I did just talked about it in my special, and you're still. <laughs> then you hear? <laughs> Can I you hear me it. talk about this? So the CNN appearance happens. Right, I get it. I live there. No one's holding a gun to your head, telling you you have to live in New York City. First of all, you know, what's funny is that you as a man, what your problem is, is that you really should just be you know embracing and welcoming to this to the fact that women are saying, hey, we don't like this, not arguing well, why we shouldn't. If listen, we say we don't like it and we are demonstrating that, then you should actually as a man who has a man who is a man of honor and wrote a book about this should be saying, well, let's discuss how we can make you all feel more comfortable. No, and how that's I, not as a man happen. who says that I have the, class, the need to help and video. talk to my, my brothers about Look, this. The video speaks for itself. It goes viral. Did you leave that and you're like, oh, this is a way to talk about it on stage? You're like, oh, I can frame it around this guy. When did you think to be like, oh, this is a good way to get into it? It went viral. And then Francesca Ramsey texted me at 5.30 a.m. Uh, no, 7.30 a.m. And I had taken a 5.30 a.m. arrival red eye. And I remember this distinctly because she texted me and I was like, it is 7.30. I am so tired. And she was like, you need to make a lecture based on this mm. appearance. You need to make it a lecture and put it on Instagram and put it on Twitter and you need to start lecturing about this. And I was like, I am so tired. And she was like, get up. And even when I tell her this story, she's like, I don't even recall it that way. I'm like, whatever, Francesca, this is how it happened. And I'm like, I was like, she was like, get up and do it. And so I literally like peeled myself out of bed and sat down in front of my computer and um, conceptualized the side-eye seminar, which was the lecture that this was involved in. So it, it became an impetus for the bigger conversation that yeah. we were just referring yeah. to. And then I started posting about it on my Twitter 
And I started booking colleges and I like was booking like colleges myself, like Notre Dame and Chapman University and all of these like major institutions. And that's literally how I was able to get a chunk of money to move out here. So how does that then become stand up? How do you turn when do you Because it was is, always funny. Yeah, I know. I so was always going to do a lecture. Yeah. Like the lecture was always going to be funny. So to me, like it's not interesting to me for me to do it if I'm not going to be funny mm-hmm. unless I'm doing like some type of like dramatic piece that's specifically that but like for Amanda's like voice I'll start out from a serious place because I'm a serious person but it'll always end up goofy yeah because I'm also a goofball I'm an extremist yeah. <laughs> so there's really not a lot of middle it's like I'm either very intense or I'm like Ooh. so there's that space that ends up being filled with like these different topics so but the lecture was always going to have a humorous tone to it because at the time I was already venturing into just the understanding of like I know that I'm a humorous voice I hadn't committed to being a stand-up yeah no well you had been no doing- I was doing stand-up yeah I was doing stand-up so I had already understood that like anything I do needs to be funny yeah I mean, because stand-up was what made my life make sense. Wow, I never said it like that before. But <laughs> what do you, In what way? I mean, because up until stand-up, it was like I was just this person that had all these multi-hyphenate skills. And people would be like, it's like it's like, almost like you do everything but nothing at all. I'm like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but I needed to find like this umbrella to cradle people and to make sense of what I was doing. And stand-up came into the mix. And all of a sudden, being a writer, being a host, being a singer, being a performer became requisites versus distractions from each other. Then it became like, oh, you're a stand-up, so you can write, right? And you can sing, right? You can host, right? Oh, great. You can. And that just made everything make sense for everyone else, including myself. I want to go through certain beats of the joke. And you if you have any thoughts of why the joke is that or what you like about it, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, on, in, in, in the special, you described the, the man as... Uh, the whitest white man of whitery, mm, you know, yes. the type who wears two polos at the same damn time. Yes. What do you like about that imager? Do you feel, I, I looked at that, I watched the clip. He is, is he I not am a white that? person. He is, he is really a cartoon Starkly. of what a white man is He's like. eggshell. Yeah. Yeah, he is exactly that. He is a caricature. I mean, you're just like, oh, this is what they mean when they talk about like straight white guys. Like he has a MAGA hat in his back pocket. It's like, it's just important to set up the imagery for people so that they know the voice coming out of the person's mouth. Mm -hmm. I just really feel like I'm good at setting up for folks the context of where something is coming from. Because I could have simply just said I was on a panel on CNN with a guy who said something. But once you know what this guy looks like and what his essence is, like his point of view, before he even opens his mouth, it just makes it that much funnier that he said some dumb shit. I mean, it's just like, oh yeah, I knew he was going to say something wild. He wears two polo shirts. On... Seth Meyers, we talked about this literally right before recording. You did a shorter version of yes. it, and you just sort of there was this guy, there was a person who said something. But yes. when you describe this person, it's a big, it's a big it's enough. much bigger. Yeah. I mean, I had to truncate it for Seth Meyers because it was only five minutes, and I definitely wanted to get in certain other material. Like I knew I needed to do the Negro National Anthem on the Seth Meyers show on NBC, like sure. that was happening. So I definitely didn't get to be as elaborate. But whenever when I'm on stage, if I have time. I'm going to give you as much of an elaborate description as possible because the theater person in me is thinking in terms of like just the character and the space and the motivation. So, uh, surprise, catcalling is still a thing. I was on CNN and uh, 
The other correspondent said, everybody knows that women love when strange men yell compliments at them in the street. Everybody knows that. Mm. That's when I decided I needed to tell him what a compliment was, because he doesn't know that. Well, I think that then gets to sort of you set up what the fundamental premise is, which is this is somebody who doesn't know what a compliment is. Correct. Because how could you stand by this and say something so absurd to me that women love getting compliments from men in the street if you knew what a compliment actually was? That's me giving you the misdirect that I respect this person. Yeah. You set up a next thing, but you do something really interesting on the special which you go. As you know, black women, and so you're scratching your head, and then once you say black women, you then pat your head. Was that at all intentional? It was intentional in the moment. It was just like, so basically if you have a weave or braids, you can't really scratch your head because it loosens the weave or the braids. So you learn to pat your head to preserve. And that's a very specific black woman thing. And so as I was doing it, it was like, it just naturally was like, that's what needs to happen. And little things like that are to me what, take something to a different level with the jokes. like yeah. And people misunderstand. A lot of comics really, I feel like, underestimate that. They underestimate the power of an eyebrow, you know, or of, of just moving your eyes a certain way. The physicality doesn't have to be like I'm, you know, fucking a stool. Um, but it can be something very slight. Yeah. And people, if they're riveted, if they're engaged, they will pick up on that slight movement and that's another punch. It feels so in the moment, and I think they could respond to it. Or you, it felt like you were just talking to them, and you're like, "Oh, this is a wink to the people who knows what this." Somehow, I've managed to make it so that people think that I'm literally in their living room talking to just them. We're on the phone, we're having a conversation, even if I'm doing like a full show in front of 2,300 yeah. people. So then you go to the Jamaican man. Is that was that based on a specific experience? Did that was there a specific Jamaican man that you were thinking of when you do it? No, that was a shout out to all the Jamaican men of uh, Flatbush, Brooklyn, who stand outside Golden Crusts and <laughs> and greet us with their unique uh, choices of catcall words. Compared to Seth Meyers, you really you do just way more. All, is that just getting more comfortable? Is it something that it's after just you time? Walk, yeah. It's literally just time. Seth Meyers, I mean, I the joke was already fully formed when I did it on Seth Meyers. It was just, I literally only had five minutes, and I need to get things off. And that's the other thing I don't like about the five minutes. It's like you you just feel so pressured to get things off. Like, bring the funny on NBC. Like, they only had, like, three minutes. The stand-ups who were in the show only had three minutes. I'm just like, ugh, three minutes? I'm telling 20-minute jokes at this point. On, on your podcast, you're talking about the difference between comedians and jesters, and, and it ultimately comes down to sort of having intention in terms of what the, you want the result and the laugh is and having intention of what you're trying to get from the audience. When you're doing physical stuff, how do you make sure to still imbue sort of intelligence and purpose into it? Well, I always have it attached to mm-hmm. a concept that does have intelligence imbued into it. And if it doesn't, then I feel like uh, I'll let it go, which, in, which also goes to... Um, the fact that like I'll have jokes sometimes that are just verbally kind of just funny but I'm like so a good example is I have a joke called Dashiki Chic and it's a joke about how I could I feel like there's like three pockets of black people in the nation right now there's the coons the revolutionaries and the Dashiki Chic and the Dashiki Chic are the folks who they may not stop a revolution they're not starting the revolution but if the revolution is televised 
they know what to wear. And like those are the same people who like when it was time to go to Wakanda, they didn't have to go shopping. They literally were like, we're going to Africa and they flipped through the closet and they're like, I'm ready. T'Challa lo lo lo, Wakanda forever. So I tell this joke and I go into a very extensive um, space. I, I go into an expensive explanation about how style has played a role in black revolution. I talk about like the civil rights movement. I talk about the Panthers and I talk about Al Sharpton. Now, when I did the joke for my special, it wasn't fully developed. And so it really just kind of was me like putting or putting around with mm. a premise. And then I had like a really strong end on Al Sharpton. But the end was like a cheap shot. <laughs> And it was a low-hanging fruit, and it was still got a laugh and it got a punch, but it was like, I can't put this in here because it's not connected to an actual, like, developed mm-hmm. intellectual concept. It's just a cheap shot, <laughs> and I'm not going to do that to myself, nor Mr. Sharpton. We'll be back with more Amanda Seals after this word from our sponsor. So then you go to the uh, Harlem and the, the the men playing dice where and, you know, Seth Meyers, the joke is what you're wearing to Seth Meyers in this joke. You describe what you're wearing that night. If I'm walking by and some guys pause their dice game and say, yo, shorty with the curly bun and the Janet Jackson velvet and the Beetlejuice pants. <laughs> I see you, ma. Are yes. you is that also an in the moment thing or do you yes. think you know what you're it's in the moment? It's like whatever I'm wearing at that time, that's what the joke ends up being about. Like on Seth Meyers, I was like, Beetle, that's this thing about Beetlejuice, I think, on yeah. Seth Meyers. Because you're wearing black and white shirts. Right. Outfits. And then on the, <laughs> uh, on the special, I'm just like, because like my pants just have just designs, yeah. and is just a hilarious sound, and it's very uniquely New York. So in, in Seth Meyers, you don't even have the third beat, but in the third beat, you have the smiling part. Yes. How did the smiling part evolve? Um, the smiling part actually came about, I want to say, f- like early on, like first, because when I was living in Harlem, that used to be like a regular everyday thing. Like, why you ain't smiling, ma? And I'm like, because I don't like you. And so like all this stuff comes from real experiences, but the smiling part has been in the mix for a long time. Also just because I think it's a very shared experience that a lot of women are just annoyed with the expectation to smile all the time and like resting bitch face and all this crap. And it's like, no, you just want to be made to feel like you could smash like at any moment in time, like if my if I'm and, and the fact that if I'm smiling at you, that's enough for you to think that you yeah. can smash is speaks even more volumes to the full bullshit of it all. But the smiling, when it comes down to the CVS receipt, that is based on a true experience. <laughs> the direwolf part of that joke is was that a go-to description of having a period that you? Yes, because <sighs> I really believe that. It's like you know, I I tell a joke about. I, that that part actually originally came from a joke I, te- I tell about luxury tax and how like there's this idea that you know there's a luxury tax on women's uh, women's um, feminine hygiene projects at products and like what is the luxury in this period like there's no cashmere tampons I'm not sleeping on three thousand count Egyptian I'm not I'm not my pads are not made of three thousand count mm-hmm. Egyptian cotton like it's so where is the luxury the true luxury is that men don't have to walk around seeing us look like we were bit in the Buzzy by Direwolves. That's how that joke originally experienced, what, what, what took place. And then I went on to say, like, imagine a world like that. I mean, it would create more jobs because who's going to clean up bus seats? As that joke was jettisoned from your actor, like, well, I still have this description. 
And it- yes, I still have the description. I mean, a lot of times that's what happens. Like, I'll be on stage, and that's what I mean about the the, the fluidity and the organicness mm-hmm. of stuff. Like, I just did a show the other night at the Kennedy Center where I found, like, old jokes that I couldn't, that I hadn't, like, really finished, and I found a way to, like, bring them into new stuff that I was developing. And so that has started to happen, which is how I know that I could do another special soon because my brain has started to now start harvesting you just start harvesting like from these different places and you're like, oh, I can put this over here now and I can put that over there. And I mean, the luxury tax joke has now re- been reborn because of the abortion ban and just the reality that we have to continue to address patriarchy. And I continue to find that needed to be done on stage. You've talked about when, when you started working on a special, you really try to work hard to refine it and you mentioned uh, I can't remember his name but working with another comedian in terms of both editing Thomas. And, and especially helping with transitions and yeah. can you talk about that process is, and is that how Harriet Tubman became the end of this joke because it became the entrance to the next joke um, well, Reg Thomas is my opener, and he's also a good friend of mine, and he just has a great comedic mind, mm-hmm. and he has a way of just being able to listen to my set and tell me like what works and doesn't work without shattering my entire existence. Um, and we just have a good back and forth. like We have a good sounding board conversation between us about how things work that doesn't make me feel like someone is trying to write for me, and that also but also empowers me to like come up like he's a muse for me like I have other openers that I rock with that I think are dope but for some reason when Red shows up like my set elevates it's just what it is like I did three shows in Cleveland this this uh these last three months where I just was like oh I'm I'm on another level like I just saw myself elevate and it was the first time that Red had joined us on the road and I was like forced to elevate into that space but the process is really a lot of times like, okay, yo, I like this, but like, can we maybe move this over here? Or like, maybe we should not do this. Like the uh, the agenda joke, like used to sound one way. And then Reg was like, yo, I think you should not say that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Timing. And then, and then would you then try it out? Yes. And I'll try it out. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So I'll try it out. And then it's like, okay, maybe I need to say this. Like, like Harriet Tubman Right in the beginning of the Harriet Tubman joke, I say, you know, Harriet Tubman had to help a lot of people across the Mason-Dixon. I'm sure she met and ran to a lot of annoying people like a complainer. And I'm 100% sure that that was a man. Now, at one point, we had said, maybe I should say nigga. And when I said that, and then I did it one time as nigga, and the audience looked at me and was not laughing. And I was like, wow, that's interesting, because I say that word quite often yeah. in my stand-up, and they laugh. But for some reason, in this particular context, it made them freeze. And when I went back to saying it was a man, all of a sudden, man just had a more humorous tone to mm-hmm. it. And so we stuck with it. I fought for Harriet to stay in the special, actually. They, the, everyone wasn't necessarily in agreement for the Harriet joke. There was another joke that they felt, because we had a time constraint. Yeah. So I had to cut stuff. There was another joke that they felt was stronger, but I was like, nobody's doing a Harriet Tubman joke. Not this way. And the reality is, is that my comedy is very rooted in intellectualism. So I'm going to choose a Harriet Tubman joke off or over a chicken head joke. Yeah. And that was the, the hard Sophie's choice <sighs> I had to make. Do you, uh, do you remember any major changes that happened to the catcall joke? Either Yeah, we had the... to cut out a third beat. So there's actually four beats. Yeah. And we cut out the third beat, which is that, like, if I'm walking by a construction site in the Bronx, you just hear, ah, that's not even words. Oh, yeah, that was in the Seth Meyers yeah, that. Yeah, that's not even words. How do I even know that they're trying to say, you know, excuse me, you look marvelous. If I'm walking by a construction site and I just hear, ah, that's not even words. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
Um, so you, you discussed you were you had twenty more twenty minutes more material than the hour that you're allotted, yes. and that was very difficult to cut things down. And you you also mentioned that you sort of had three filters that it had to be smart, funny, and and black. Why did this joke make the cut? Well, I think this joke made the cut one because it's tried and true. I think it's smart just on the nature of the fact that we're addressing catcalling and we're addressing it from a point of view that is unique. You know, I'm giving it certain um, tonalities that is related that are relatable to people, but that also address it from a very ground floor conversation, which is simply just you wanted to talk to a woman and you didn't know how. Here is how this does not work, you mm-hmm. know? And me and Reg to this day are so mad that we missed a callback in the special. So later in the special, I talk about how the guy in L.A. was hollering at me and he was like, excuse me, excuse me, first and foremost. And we are so mad that we missed the callback because what we should have said there is I should have said, now that's how you holla. Yeah. And I'm like, can we do it over? Like, can we just do a re, can we do a director's cut where I say, and that's how you holla? So there's, that's the smart element. The black element is, of course, that like, I feel like this is taking place tonally, specifically in black neighborhoods. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that there isn't catcalling happening, you know, in the Appalachians. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm not. But. The way that I'm describing it is very specific, like pausing a dice game. People laugh because they know exactly what that is. Like they can see that. They came out the train station. Dudes was throwing craps (laughs) against the wall or playing CeeLo and they stopped to talk to you. And you like, oh, God, here we go. You know, so the and then the funny part of it is, I mean, it's just funny. A Jamaican man coming out of the mist to talk to you and compare you to a vanilla ice cream cone. That's hilarious. In an episode of your podcast, you talked about your desire for specials to be special, and you talk about it demands a vision. What was your vision and sort of in practice, how does one enforce such a thing, especially on a first special? I just mean that you have to have a vision for the fact that this is not a regular night of you on stage telling jokes. There's a certain narrative that you, in my mind, are choosing to tell. And it doesn't mean that it has to have like a thread. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it has to have a theme. But I do think conceptually you have to know like I'm going out here to get this off. And what is this? Yeah. You know, so for me, I knew that I wanted to speak specifically for black women, to black women on behalf of and whatever else came in, that's fine. But I knew that that was where I was coming from. And it's not to say that it ha- hampered me by any means, but it instead gave me a thesis. And I always feel like the academic in me loves like having this base to come back to, to just keep things tight and on track. And that can be kind of scary with a special. It feels a little nebulous because you're like, I just want to give you everything, but you can't. So give yourself an anchor. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I was thinking about your Instagram bio, which says, I'm not for everyone. Um, and as you said, your goal is to make a special uh, for black women. And in the intro clip, you you really delineate that. Um, okay, delineate. <laughs> you know, considering that there's there's a truism in comedy that I, I will not say that I ascribe to, but people say, which is a good comedian can make everyone laugh. That's that bullshit. Not I, everyone I, even has a good sense of humor. <laughs> so go, what yeah, do you I'm say to I'm not interested those? in making everybody yeah. laugh. Why? I want to make some people cry. There's some people I'm like, you need to go look in the mirror and smear your lipstick and listen to Sarah McLaughlin and think about yourself. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not interested in making everybody laugh. Uh, I, ideally, I want people to feel. I want some people to feel uncomfortable. 
You know, I want you to feel uncomfortable. And sometimes that's where the laugh comes in, right? Like, just like, uh, <laughs> I want them to shift in their seats. You know, I'm more, I'm more interested in making everyone learn. Mm-hmm. That's more interesting to me than making everyone laugh. There's a lot of discussion, especially nowadays, about what the, the goals of satire, right? There's some people like, oh, like good comedy should change people's minds. But I think that is sort of one, a really hard thing to do and maybe too much to ask for yeah. from comedy. What do you feel like the goal is in terms of, I mean, you said to educate, but. For who, me, I mean, listen, I want people to laugh. Yeah. But I want, if I'm being like as clear cut as possible, I want the majority of the audience to be laughing. But I don't feel like I didn't do my job if some of them are not laughing, but they are uncomfortable or they are pondering and pensive or they are offended. Like, I'm not necessarily out of sorts if that takes place. But I think it's also just bullshit when people come up with all these rules. Like, every comic has a different... That's the beauty of comedy. Like, you you see certain comics for different purposes. Like, there's certain shows I go to to get certain things out of that and then there's other people I go see to get certain things out of that it's like music you know I'm not going to a band of horses show expecting Migos well it's interesting I think it's partly because you did not you are not at 19 starting to do stand up and then like a bunch of 40 year olds like well this is what stand up is and you have to obey you're a full grown person I'm very lucky that I was a full-grown person because there were still 40-year-olds who were like, you have to do this. And I was like, go fuck yourself. You mentioned that you 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 you, you think you were stand-up as TED Talk with jokes. Mm-hmm. TED Talk, which is funny because, I don't know how you're aware, but there's lots of people who are making fun of Nanette, the stand-up special, because it was like a TED Talk. But you're like, no, TED Talk is a fine standard. And there's also, there's a part in this joke where you say something and you get claps. And there's no jokes. They're just clapping because you said something you agree with. And that's another thing that people are like, oh, comedians shouldn't be, they need to be laughing at all time. What is your sort of de- defense of, for lack of a better word, uh, TED Talkery? I mean, I think TED Talkery is just, we are in an era where information and truth are so under fire that comedians oftentimes are like the last bastion of like truth and reality. So it's only natural that there would be some of us who have not, who have developed within our comedy, this space of actually telling like facts and truths Mm -hmm. and realities and relaying that to people through our own unique lens. And it's necessary because comedians are like the last folks that aren't like being run by a network and our voices are not being curated by some outside force. So we really have the, space and the onus on us to use that space and that platform in a in a way that feels authentic to us so if you're a truth teller it's only natural that in in that space you're going to authentically tell same truths that make people laugh and there's going to be some truths that just make people be like yes i agree with that but that's also relatability and relatability is a huge part of comedy i don't remember which podcast you said this on but you said it's important to put as much work into yourself as your craft and I personally think everyone should thank their therapist when in like on award shows or in books or whatever. Yes. Can you think of specifically personal work that you did that helps you do a joke like this or helps you do a special like this? Yeah, I mean, because I had to do a lot of work on just realizing that I am not for everyone. Yeah. And so you need to be able to stand your ground in that in order to be able to go out and tell jokes that everyone will see. And that not everyone will like yeah. and be able to know that even if they don't like it, you're all right. Now, of course, if the majority of folks are like, yeah, <laughs> you should maybe just yeah. just take a, a gander at what you're doing. But even in that case, sometimes it's like y'all just ain't on it yet. You'll catch up. 
And there's sometimes people think that's a certain level of arrogance, but sometimes that's really like what it is. So I would say that's probably the biggest thing is like having to get to a place of self, like for lack of a better word, but like self-love, self-acceptance yeah. that has a peacefulness to it that is not easily disrupted by dislike. In that episode of the podcast I referred to, you said a sort of a, a grand ambition for a, a special is it should contribute to the comedic canon. How do you feel like yours or how do you think or hope yours might. I mean, so far, I can only speak for like what people tell me. Sure. And I've gotten just a really strong response from people that on average is, is you know, you did something unique. You're speaking for a group of people that don't really get spoken for. And you are natural and have your own voice. And I and so the unique part isn't just about my voice, but just in terms of like the actual delivery of how I'm presenting things, not necessarily like my point of view. And that means a lot to me. And I think that in terms of comedy, especially for black women in comedy, we just haven't gotten the opportunity to have these platforms. So if I'm able to cut through my first time out in that way, then I hope that creates a lane to give more shots to others to do the same. On a podcast around the release of the special, you talk about... uh how the special felt like a milestone and how milestones when you look at them should be sort of turning points of your creative life or your personal life uh you compared it to having a kid or getting married however when you were saying this you're still in the window yeah so now that you have some distance from it you can kind of maybe see where the turn is heading what do you have a sense of that especially as you as you said earlier that you've had times where you felt like you're on another level it it just gave me like a real sure-footed platform to leap off of I don't even like the word platform but like a it's like a cliff like mm-hmm. I, I just reached a certain summit that let me even notice like oh there's other summits over there and I had never even considered those like writing a film and mm-hmm. really like getting my production company going and there was just a number of things that I had considered were dreams that for some reason after doing this special have now started to feel more like goals and it was just getting the mammoth of this accomplishment done, completed, and in a successful and like revered way that gave me a certain level of confidence, but also insight and access and resources to be able to even consider like striking those dreams from the sky and bringing them to a more reachable level. Because it's having a thing that demand a lot of work, that demanded a vision, and then seeing that I can execute a vision. It's like graduating from school. You graduate from school and you're just like, oh my God, I like did that. You know, and you ride that wave for a little bit, you yeah. know, like you're broke, but you rode, you ride a little wave of like, yeah, but I, I got through some shit, you know. And so with the special, that was the first time I'd ever had to like wait that long to see something come to fruition. That was the first time I'd ever had to kind of like just make something come out of nothing. Like I had no process before yeah. that. So I had to just figure out this process and really just give myself over. It's like if you smoke a blunt that you didn't plan to smoke and it's a potency that you didn't plan on and you have to just be like, get in, get in, don't fight it. And like, if you're not a smoker like myself, then that has happened to you before. And so that's what it was for the special. I just had to just give in. It's what I imagine doing a, a sensory deprivation chamber would be like. You just have to give in. Yeah. And I really just had to do that and trust it and when you come out the other side of that it empowers you for real because now you really are like okay I do know what I'm talking about like I I can trust myself in a whole new way and that gives you a little bit more of a safety net to take bigger risks (laughs) 
Uh, so that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because of comedy, it's ah, uh, yeah, that's very witty. Thank you. Um, is there a joke you wish you can steal? Let me explain. Because uh, stealing jokes is bad, but this is no one will be mad at you. No one will know you stole the joke. It's sort of a different universe. Everything's exactly the same, but you have this other comedian's joke that you wish you can always. Yamanika have. Saunders the other day was like, I'm tired of people. She, she, Yamanika Saunders the other day said the same people who are saying there should be a straight parade are the same people who think that there should be white history month. There isn't white history month because y'all have done so much terrible bullshit that ain't nobody trying to celebrate that. And there can't be a straight parade because y'all are boring and don't nobody want to watch you walk around in khakis and Starbucks down the street. And I was like, damn, B. I could have had that. <laughs> that was right there. <laughs> it was right there. Because you can see it. Yeah. You can just see the straight parade. Yes. It's just J. Crew. It's all it is. Making fun of my shirt to my face. I'm wearing a J. Crew shirt right, under cool. this sweater. Right, cool. So I get it. But that's what it is. There's no flamboyance. There's yeah. no fun. There's no flair. No. no. It's just a walk. It's a walk. <laughs> it's a yog. They're yogging. Yeah. Can you do an impression of yourself? No. All right. I'm going to try now, though. I'm going to think about that. And, I mean, trust me, I've had impressions of myself done on a regular basis. Sure. But uh, Lil Rel does an incredible impression of me, actually. Do you eat before the show? And if you do, what do you try to eat? I do eat before the show. I'm very adamant about eating before the show. I try not to eat anything too heavy. But And, and oftentimes when I say eat before the show, like it may not even be a full meal. Like It's like I'm just going to devour this fruit plate that I mm-hmm. demand in my dressing room. but Or at the very least, a banana. Sure. It's imperative that I drink copious amounts of water before the show because in Atlanta, I almost fainted on stage because I felt myself becoming dehydrated. And I was like, are you better on stage? And then I like just threw back some water and was fine. Yeah. But I was like, oh, you really are not taking care of yourself. You should probably get up on that. Do you have a a best heckler story or a positive oh, heckler story? Oh, yes, of course. Best heckler, white woman at the comedy store who was upset in the front row that I said that there was a difference in white women's experience in the workforce than other people's experience. And she was just, just miffed. <laughs> Just miffed and was like, you know, that's not true. And I was like, that is true. Uh, she was like, no, it's not. And I was like, you want to come up here and talk about it? Because it's not going to end well for you. Yeah, yeah. I have a mic and I have a master's. And she's like, I'm smart too. And I was like, ah, I'm a professional comedian. So I warned her generously. She still came on stage and was like, you know, you're talking about the pay gap, but the pay gap is not good for white women either. I'm like, yeah, but the pay gap for black women is greater and for Latinx women as well. So, like, what are, what's your point? And she just embarrassed herself. And finally, I was just like, ugh, Jesus. Like, what, what even, what are you, why are you up here? And she's like, you don't even know my name. And I was like, okay, Stephanie. And I, like, because I just give people names. Yeah. And then later I was like, what's your name? And she's like, you already said it. And I was like, your name is Stephanie. And she was like, ugh, yes. And that was the end. Because how can you come back from yeah. that? How? It's on my Instagram if you search for it. I think I think the biggest mistake you made was having that last drink. Because it gave you the courage to come over here. And guess what? I'm totally sober. So my brain is sharp right now. So your issue... My issue is you making a distinction between black women and white women having different... Yeah, that's right, yeah. Business. Okay, 
have a different authority and position in business. Both, both races. Do you have a a joke that never worked that you, re, you we've talked about a lot, but a joke that you really believe in that truly yes, never worked? Yes, yes, I have a joke about police brutality, and I cannot find the end, and it, it does work up until the punch. I cannot. I liken. I, I talk about how like when these cops are talking about like they're afraid that they're killing these. They're afraid. When I, I have a joke that talks about how like. When these cops say that they pulled out a gun and killed a black man because they were afraid he was going to pull out a big black gun, I'm like, this bullshit. You knew he wasn't going to pull out a big black gun. You were scared he was going to pull out a big black dick. That's what you were actually scared of. And I have a whole like story that I tell about this, and I just, I am, uh, I can't seem to like bring it around. And I'm gonna get there. You yeah. hear me, everyone in this room? I'm everyone listening. I'm gonna get there. I'm gonna get there by the next special. I I found a new route. The other night. Mm. So I'm going to walk around that area and, you know, see what kind of Pokemons I find. <laughs> Great. The end. That's it for another episode of Good One. Amanda Seal's I Be Knowing is available on HBO Go and HBO Now. For more information about Amanda's Smart, Funny, and Black tour, go to smartfunnyandblack.com. Follow Amanda on Twitter and Instagram at Amanda Seals. Good One is produced by Mike Comte with production assistance from Jessamyn Molly and research help from Serena Devi. Justin Do Right did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a headgum podcast.